probably supposed to already be out here when the lights come up, but that's all right. <laughs> I get distracted by the... That's a... One of my burdens is I do get distracted easily. That's a, a, sometimes when Andrew asks me to fill in for this, I always get, well, I get a little jumpy and, and uh, uh, it's just difficult, right? To, I, you can ask Amy, uh, my wife. She, uh, I get a, like a, about nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. I just can't get, can't get focused, can't get settled, and uh, um, and it just uh, it becomes complicated for the few weeks leading up to, to uh, when I have to share. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Is that uh, one, the Bible is very clear to us that um, uh, for those of us that, and I'm going to use the word presume, uh, presume to teach or, uh, or, or take apart God's word, there's, there's an extra burden. There's an extra burden of care that needs to be taken as we, as we try to communicate what God has laid on our hearts and what the Spirit has, has uh, chosen uh, f- for people to speak about. And, and so that's an extra burden, and I, and I try to take that very seriously. And uh, uh, so it does create a lot, of, a lot of stress and angst for me. Uh, we've been going through the book of James, uh, and um, it's a, if you're not familiar with James, it's a, it's a fascinating book. Uh, James was the brother of Jesus. And the great thing about, uh, well, I'm not sure it would be a great thing to be the brother of Jesus because I can just imagine, uh, you know, James, why can't you be more like Jesus, right? Look at, look at Jesus. Why can't? But the, the thing about James is he was the brother of Jesus. Uh, the, the, uh, the tradition is that he was Jesus' uh, oldest brother right after Jesus would have been the oldest in the family. And then James, and uh, there were several brothers and sisters. But James was not a believer until after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, James is one of the ones that Jesus actually appeared to post-resurrection. So uh, to, it's fair to say that he became a believer in his brother in Christ late in life. And as a consequence, he uh, became uh, 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 very uh, passionate in his defense of the faith and in, in the teachings of Christ and, and in this Christian walk, the way, as it was called back then. So much so that he became the leader of the very important Jerusalem council, the Jerusalem church. James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. Post-conversion, Paul, when he went back to the Jerusalem council, James was one of the ones that he met with who gave approval to the apostle Paul, to Paul's message and Paul's teachings. So this letter is a specific letter that James has written from his seat in the council in Jerusalem to the believers, the Jewish believers, that have been scattered throughout the world through the dispersion, through the persecution. So when the, when the persecution started to come, the, the, the followers of the way uh, ran, right? They scattered, and this was part of God's method of spreading the gospel was the dispersion of these believers. And so James is writing this letter specifically to the Jewish believers. And he's addressing some things that, that they, um, uh, they've been facing and the challenges that have come to them. Um, so before we start to unpack the letter and the section that we're going to cover today, I would like to open with a word of prayer. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you, God, for the opportunity to share your word. 
Lord, I pray that you would give me the words to speak, the words that someone here needs to hear. And Lord, that a lot of times that someone is me, something that I need to hear that you, Lord, have, uh, will lay on me. I just pray, God, that, that our time would be effective and efficient and that we could grow uh, in you and in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've walked through the book of James, we've been five weeks now. Somebody help me out. That's about five weeks, I think, now in, in James. And uh, we started out in the first chapter where we got to learn that uh, uh, there's joy to be found in trials. Uh, that seems difficult to swallow, but we're, we're taught, and what James tells us, what Andrew communicated was, was that joy is not a feeling, it's not a fleeting emotion, but it's, it's a choice to find satisfaction in where God has you in the times of trials and tribulation. And Christ has told us that there will be, not if, but when, there will be trials and tribulations in this life. And James has taught us that there's joy to be found because of the faith that we have in God. And then we go on to learn that, uh, that, uh, that there's dangers in a divided heart. You know, James talks about that it's like a man that looks in a mirror and then turns away and forgets immediately what he looks like. That this divided heart can't be a whole heart. And what Andrew tried to communicate was that that we need that whole heart for God to be healthy. You know, uh, he used the example of if I have half a heart, I'm dead. Right? I mean, you just can't. It doesn't work. You need all the parts to work. And so it's the dangers of this divided heart. And then we, uh, uh, we can't allow our circumstances to keep us from what God has called us to. Right? Just because we're in difficult circumstances doesn't remove the responsibilities we have to do what God has called us to do. And then last week we looked at motives matter. And the favoritism that was going on in the church on the rich versus the poor. And Andrew uh, uh, opened up the I, uh, self, and me theory. That, that our motives matter. That are we only in relational or in relationships because it benefits us. And that brings us to this week, which is James chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 26. So I invite you to open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring your Bible today, we've got uh, our ushers would be more than happy uh, to give you a Bible, and this is yours to keep. Uh, Take home with you, study, read, write in, uh, color, underline, circle, point arrows, margins. You know, I I, I love, uh, um, I'm not a good Bible writer, but I I love uh, Amy and my mom. You look at their Bibles, and it's just, the margins are just covered with, with, as they read and study. And I don't have that habit. I keep a notebook. And maybe that's really old school on my part that I just something weird about. But it's a great habit to write and make notes in your Bible. It reminds you of what God is teaching you at that time and in that season as you go back and reread those passages. So I'd really encourage you. Uh, to use the Bibles that we give you and bring them with you every week and, and take notes, you know, uh, uh, use them. 
So we're in James chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, James is toward the back. So I think it's like the fifth or eighth book from the end. So uh, you go all the way to Revelation and then kind of come back to the left here and, and you'll find it uh, right there. So chapter, four, uh, chapter 2, uh, verse uh, 14 through 26. I, I, I broke this section out. This section, this 14 through 26, these 13 verses, uh, I believe are the central theme to everything James is trying to communicate. This section is um, the basic fundamental doctrine that James is trying to communicate everywhere from chapter 1 through the end of the book where he talks about the joy and the trials and doing and being where God calls us to be and favoritism. It all comes into this pinnacle and then he'll go in later in chapter 3 and, uh, and to the end of the book. He'll, he'll uh, keep referring back to this section a little bit. So I broke this section for the note takers. I broke this section into three parts. Uh, verses 14 through 17, I titled The Expression of a True Faith. And then uh, verses 18 through 20, I titled The Evidence of a True Faith. And 21 through 26, the examples of a true faith. So that's expression, evidence, and examples. So in our first section, we'll start with verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? So we're going to stop. Can that kind of faith save anyone? So he's asking a question here. He's opened up this section with a, a, a rhetorical question. And it's written, the way that this question is written in the original language is the answer is assumed. He's asking a question, but the, the audience, he's already anticipating the answer. And that answer is no. Can, a work, can faith without works, can that kind of faith save anyone? And James's answer is no. On the surface, that seems a little harsh, a little counterintuitive, but think of it. In the expression of true faith, I want you to think of a person, and don't shout the name out or anything like that, but think of someone in your life, someone in your life that you have no doubt that they are just in love with Jesus, that they have a faith that, that we can only aspire to, a, a faith that is so strong. And I want you to think about that person, and I want you to think, how do you know? How do you know what their faith is like? Is it because of the fish on the back of their car? Is it because of the bumper sticker? No. It's because of the verses and the pithy sayings they put on Facebook, right? That's how we know. It's our status. That's how we know because, because I put, I put Jesus-y stuff on my Facebook page. So obviously, right? Or, or, or is it the tattoos that they have, right? That's a thing now, right? We, we uh, crosses and Celtic crosses and verses and, and different things. Is, is that how we know that they're a believer in Jesus and that their, their faith is solid and true? Or is it because of the way they live their life? Is it because of the things that you see them do? Is it the love that they have for others that they express through their actions? Is that how we know? And that's what James is talking about here. 
he's talking about this expression of faith that's lived out. So my question is, do people know the strength of your faith? Do people know the strength of your faith? Our faith is a tool that has been given to us by God. And I ask you, what good is a tool that's never used? If you have a hammer that the handle is broken on, is it useful? If you have money that you never spend or invest, is it useful? You know, when I was a kid, my grandfather used to say, well, you're about as worth as much as a bump on a log. You know, in order for something to be useful, it has to do something. It has to be productive. I grew up out in the country. For those of you that have never uh, met me or don't know me very well, I did grow up out in the country in Texas. And... um, I lived with my grandparents for a, a, a good portion of my time. And uh, uh, it was a working ranch. Uh, we had uh, cattle and hogs and uh, some ground. And uh, not, not farming like up here where it's all row crop. We grew some hay, but mostly it was centered around livestock. And, uh, and one of the things that, uh, that I remember, and I don't think you'd see a lot of this now, but uh, every, every weapon in the house was loaded at all times. All the rifles were loaded all the time. And um, the question was posed, and, and there's a reason for that, is because predators and, uh, you know, if something's chasing cattle or, or you need to take care of some uh, predators, hawks, owls, whatever, uh, that are after, after your livestock, you really don't have time to root around in a drawer and try to find the right ammunition to fit the right weapon. And, and you know, the, things are happening fairly quickly, and so you need to get business taken care of. So the question was asked, why do you keep everything loaded? And he explained that, but he explained it in that if my rifle's not loaded, it's just a stick. What good is that? You know, and so that's how we need to look at our faith. Is our faith loaded? Is it ready for use at any time? Regardless of the circumstance, are you ready to defend or attack with your faith? Let's not kid ourselves. We're called. We're told clearly, be ready to defend the faith that you have, to be able to explain it, to be able to reproduce it. But we're also told that the Bible is our weapon, right? It's the sword. And it's, uh, it can cleave, separating bone and marrow. So we are to be attacking with our faith also, attacking the, the, the enemy. We're not just called solely for a defensive posture. But we're to be bold in our faith. But how does somebody know you're bold in your faith if you're not doing anything? This expression of faith that James uses, so he comes in in verse 15, he does a great example. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say to him, what do you say to him? (laughs) And you say to him, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well. 
but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So the Jewish audience that James is addressing is very familiar with this. This goodbye and have a good day is a standard Jewish farewell. It's uh, 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 the, way I, the way I look at it and what I would equate it to is when we come to church uh, on Sunday mornings or when we bump into people that we know, we say, hey, how you doing? And then we keep walking. We're really not interested in the answer. I mean, let's be honest. You know, if the answer is more than, oh, fine, how are you? Or great or okay, we're ready to move on, right? And that's what James is addressing here is, is these trite sayings that the Jewish community has, these standards of, of farewell, and he's asking. So you see someone, and they're hurting, and you go, oh, well, sorry, yeah, have a good day, you know, stay warm, be fed, and then you move along your way. What good is that? What have you done to help, to show, to produce, to, to bring comfort and food to that person in the same way that when we have our standard greetings, I really would challenge myself as much as anybody else. Are you really interested in the answer? Are you really interested in, in hearing of our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters of their struggle and being willing? See, that's the key. That's the hard part. I can hear the struggle, but what am I willing to do about their struggle? How am I willing to help? Or is it the, oh, I'll pray for you. Right? Now, prayer is a great thing. And prayer is something we're supposed to do. And prayer is powerful. Later, James will tell us that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's, there's much power in the prayer of the righteous. But he's also, in this section, defined who the righteous are. The righteous are those that are doing something with their faith other than the words. Other than the, I'll pray for you. And I'd also ask, how many times do we say, oh, I'll pray for you. And we don't. We forget. We get busy. We just don't. We're not even willing to fulfill the words that we've said because we're just not there. Our love, our faith isn't solid. It isn't real unless we're willing to do something with it. Our faith is the tool that God has given us to do work for him. The point being made here is that workless faith is worthless faith. I got to say that again. Workless faith is worthless faith. It's worth nothing. James describes it as dead, useless, empty not living at all. <clears throat> Faith has to have a transformative impact in our life. If there's no transformation, there's been no salvation. James asks, 
What good is it? Can that faith save you if you're not doing anything with it? This is dangerous territory that we're going to cover here in a minute. But I maintain that if there is no transformation, there has been no salvation. Faith, true faith, has a transformative impact. Paul tells us that we are a new creation. And if we're a new creation, those around us should be able to see and recognize the change. The caterpillar becomes a butterfly. A butterfly isn't a caterpillar, and a caterpillar isn't a butterfly. It's a whole new creature. Caterpillars are stuck on the ground, typically destructive, right? Caterpillars, they eat leaves. They, they tear up my tomato plants every year. I get those big, feet, great, big green fat ones that are just gross, right? Everybody knows what I'm talking about. They're just nasty. But at some point, those become... They change. Their nature changes. The very nature of what they are changes and becomes the butterfly. That's a saving faith. A saving faith is when the very nature of who you are changes. You're no longer what you were. You're a new creation. But that creation is only identified by demonstrating the new nature. Otherwise... You're not changed. There's been no impact. If there's no transformation, there's been no impact of the, of the saving faith in your life. A faith that is all words and no follow-through is worthless. Church, we're called to be the hands and feet of Christ. Does Christ just sit there and do nothing? Think of how our Savior treated people. Think of the woman at the well. The, basically the town prostitute, the town harlot. She had so many husbands and the man she was living with at the time didn't, he wasn't even her husband. But yet Christ loved her. And more importantly, Christ changed her. And when she met Jesus and realized the transformative impact that comes from meeting the Son of God, what did she do? Did she give, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm just going to go out and mind my own business. No. She ran. She told the whole town. She forced him. She said, you have to come. Not, hey, if it's convenient, if you got a little time. You know, we're doing this thing on Sunday, Sunday mornings. If you got a minute, go ahead and pop in. in. No. She went to the town and she forced them. She told them, you have to be here. You have to meet this guy. You have to meet this man. He told me everything about myself. And not only that, but he changed me. He's given me a living water and a life I never knew that I couldn't imagine you have to meet my friend Jesus. That's a transformative faith. That's a true faith. That's a faith that saves. This next section, as we go into verse 18, we're going to call this our evidence of faith. So we've talked about our expression of faith, which really ties into the earlier part of chapter 2, where the pure and pure religion and the favoritism that we talked about last week. But now we're going into uh, uh, the depth of what James is talking about, this, this, uh, this, this evidence of faith. 
Now, someone may argue some people have faith. Others have good deeds. But I say, James, I says, how, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. What James has done here is he's uh, introduced a, a, a literary foil. He's introduced a, a, a new character, this someone, right? This someone. And James is actually challenging a, a, a group of people. Now, this someone, uh, the, the, the common commentators and the, the scholars don't believe James has someone specific in mind as he writes this, but he has in mind a group of people who have grabbed onto Paul's teaching. And it's, it's very safe to assume that James is very familiar with the teaching of Paul. And so he's addressing a group that has grabbed onto Paul's teaching of faith alone. That we're saved by faith alone and only faith. And I have to be very clear here, church, there's no doubt that is true. That is the foundation that we have built our church on. And not just this church, but the total church is built on the very foundation of the work of Christ being complete, sufficient. We are saved by faith through grace. Only by grabbing on and believing to the work of Christ on the cross, the death and resurrection for our sins, are we saved. We're declared righteous before God because of Christ, not because of anything we do. I cannot be more clear than that. We do not work for salvation. But there's a group that James is addressing who has decided that if faith is sufficient, then all I have to do is say I have faith. That is what James is talking about here. James is not challenging the teachings of Paul or that foundational doctrinal truth. He's complementing it. He's completing it. And that's what he talks about is that the faith, the saving faith is complete. In the original language, the word is sanctified, that it's completed, it's made whole and complete by what we do, by our works, not because of our works. It's very important, church, it's very important that we understand that our salvation is not because of our works, but our salvation is expressed and worked out by our works. Paul, or the great apostle Paul, who, who teaches so clearly this, this, this saved by faith alone, finishes the same thought in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, we are saved by Christ, new creations through the work of Christ for good works. So many times we forget that for good works. And that's what James is teaching here. James is not, cannot be more, you have to be careful here. James is not teaching saved by works. He's not teaching Jesus points. I used to tease my kids about that, that, you know, we got to earn our Jesus points. You got to, you know, by what you do, you get extra points to get into heaven. It's like uh, um, at our store, we have uh, punch cards, right? And you, and you get a prize, right? You get, you get some free stuff if you have enough punches on your card, 
right? It's not, that's not how this works. We don't, we, there's not a tally. There's not a punch card. You know, uh, uh, Jesus isn't up at the top. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, good job. You know, oh, well, you get a bigger house. You know, it's just not how it works. There's no Jesus points. But how, as James says, the challenge is, you're right, there's no Jesus points. But you can't just say, oh, I got that. Yeah, I got that faith. You bet. I'm going to go take a nap. That's not, just like there's no Jesus points, a faith that isn't producing and reproducing and doing something isn't a faith at all. James uses the words of saving faith, but what he's really saying is no faith. A true faith gives evidence. You know, I can say I'm an apple tree, and I can stand here and tell you all day long I'm an apple tree. But unless I'm dropping apples, it doesn't mean anything. And that's what James is saying here. Your words mean nothing. It's what are you doing that means something. It's the working out of your faith in a public manner. We, the words we say and the words we use have to mean something. He goes on and says, so you say you have faith. Sure, you say you have faith. For you believe that there is one God. Good for you. I, I use that a lot. You know, somebody says, well, this is well. Good for you. So? Right, good for you. What he's referring to here is just like he was talking about the Jewish farewell, is he's referring to the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And it says... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your strength, heart, and soul. These are Jewish Christians. They would have grown up with that liturgical ritual. And so they would say, yes, this is what we believe. Yes, this is what we say. But what James is pointing out here is, well, yeah, that's great. That's what you say. Good for you. Yay. Even the demons agree with that. And what good is it? The demons agree with it, and they at least recognize it or believe it enough to shudder. The Greek here is where they talk about, and they tremble in terror. The Greek there is to shudder, to be paralyzed with fear. We say the words, or what James is saying is you say the words, but you don't even grasp the depth of the words you're saying. Even the demons understand that that verse, that scripture, that creed, that saying, and they at least have enough past this pure knowledge to be afraid. You, we, don't even have enough sense to be afraid. Right? Yes, God. Yay, I believe in God. How many people do you know that say, well, I believe there is a God. Or I believe there's a God or there's something out there. So that's enough. Belief isn't enough. Words are not enough. The demons shudder at the knowledge. We could say we are Christians. 
We could say we love Jesus. We can even say that we believe in his death and resurrection. But what do you do with it? Unless we show real evidence of our lives and our deeds, it all means nothing. Words are empty if they're not followed by action. I'm not an apple tree. I can tell you I'm an apple tree all day long. I I would love to tell you I'm six foot six. (laughs) That's my dream. I'm six foot six. I'm just going to say that and you have to believe it. Well, no, I'm not. I wish. My kid's six foot four and change, right? But just because I say it doesn't make it so. And that's what James is saying here. Is it just because you say it doesn't make it so? You know, um, Amy provides me a lot of illustrations. And believe it or not, sometimes Amy and I argue. (laughs) Right? Right? I have a hard time with it. I should say she argues, I just don't. Uh, And that's part of the problem, right, is I refuse to participate. But, you know, we do occasionally, uh, 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 or she occasionally disagrees with me. And and I, I, I struggle with that because, you know what? I'm a really fun person. I, I, I'm kind of sarcastic. I got some great jokes. I can't imagine really how much fun it is to be married to me. <laughs> what, a, what a lucky girl she is, right? But as we have these uh, discussions, right, I'll often just not, just refuse to participate. I just, yeah, okay, whatever. Right? And so... Um, I used to have a, uh, I used to have a, a really old friend who would say uh, that his, uh, uh, when she started making noise like a wife, he would turn down his hearing aid, right? Well, I don't have a hearing aid, but I have that capability. And so what she tells me, she says, she, Amy tells me, if you don't say or do something in this conversation, I'm just going to make your part up. And it may or may not be what you like. And so... So that's what James is telling us is that, is that we have to participate because people, if, if we don't participate in the conversation, the people that we have the opportunity to influence are just going to make our part up. If you say you're a Christian, but there's no transformation, if you identify yourself as a follower of Christ, but there's no discernible difference. You're not doing something. You're not working for something. You're not participating in something. How do they know? How are they supposed to know what Christ is like if we don't live it out? Christian means little Christ. How are we supposed to show people what Christ is like and who Christ is if we're not doing anything with our knowledge? That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. You can have knowledge, but it's what you do with that knowledge and how you use that knowledge that shows wisdom. And we are called to be wise. We know a tomato is a fruit. It's wisdom that says it doesn't belong in a fruit salad. You just have to use the knowledge you have appropriately. And part of that usefulness, that appropriate usefulness, is the deeds we do. James has a passion for the poor. 
He mentions them several times through his letter. And he's telling us that if you're not loving the least of these, you don't love Jesus. Listen to that. Jesus says, they, will, they, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. I'm telling you, and I maintain that if you're not showing love to not only your immediate brothers and sisters, but to those that don't know Jesus, you don't know Jesus. If your faith is not working, it's not a true faith. If there's no evidence, if you don't give real evidence, we know an apple tree is an apple tree because it makes apples. Apple trees don't make apricots. We have to be true to the root and, the, and where we are planted and who we are planted in. We, are, we have been grafted into the vine of Christ and we have to produce what the vine is made of. If we don't, the hard question is, are you truly grafted in? We have to have action against our words just have a nice day just oh I feel so sorry for them I'll pray for you isn't enough it just isn't enough there has to be more so we finish this section holy smokes time we just finished this section with the examples that James gives us The first example that James gives us is Abraham. I do not think that is an accident. We talked a minute ago about the teachings of Paul. Interestingly enough, Abraham is the exact same example Paul uses when he's teaching about about righteousness through faith alone. Abraham, because of his faith, was declared righteous and a friend of God. And so, and so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him righteous. I lost my section here. Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous, and he was called a friend of God. This is the same example that Paul uses, and actually the exact same circumstance that Paul uses, but James takes a different tack on it. Abraham was declared righteous because he believed the word of God, just as we are. He was declared righteous. He was saved, in our modern words, because he believed what God said. But how in history do we know Abraham believed what God said? Because he acted on what God said. He took his son, the promised son, by the way, that Abraham had when he was a very old man, after Sarah had scoffed at God's words, The promised son. And remember, this was his only son. His promised son. His heir that God had said will be more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sands on the sea. But here's what I need you to do, Abraham. I need you to take him up to the mountain. 
and sacrifice him to me. I don't know about you, but I have three sons, and I can't imagine that request from God. Nor can I imagine that kind of obedience. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it marvelous that we have the example of Abraham who is declared righteous is a Christian because he believes and because he says he believes. But he does more than say I believe. He acts on that belief to the point of offering his son as a sacrifice. God declared him righteous because he was obedient to the end. And God showed a ram to replace Isaac as the sacrifice. What a great picture. What a great picture of, of the work that Christ did. God sacrificed his own son as the substitute for us. We have to grab onto that. We have to believe that. And it's only through a firm belief in that that we are saved. But we cannot prove that firm belief. We cannot show that firm belief. We cannot reproduce that firm belief unless we do something that God is asking us to do. In the same way, Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab, a Gentile, a non-Jew, James pulls out like the worst of the worst to show the example of true faith. Rahab, the prostitute, the non-Jew, was because she believed the promises of God. God had promised the children of Israel the promised land. He had said, you will possess this land. Jericho was the first thing in their way. They had defeated for 40 years. They had been wandering in the desert. And words of the great miracles of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and the way that God had protected and provided for his children for these 40 years had reached Rahab and she believed. She believed in God's promise for his children. And she grabbed onto that promise. And she acted on that promise by hiding the spies and sending them out a different way. She betrayed everyone she knew, her city, her country, her nationality, for the belief in the promises of God. I got to ask, what is God asking you to do? Where do we go with this? If we believe and we mean what we say, what is God asking you to do? Not everybody is asked to be a missionary. Praise Jesus, I couldn't do it. Not everybody is asked to get up here and talk. But I do know everybody is asked to do something. It might be giving. We're in the month of giving, and we're commanded to give sacrificially. Why? Why are we commanded to give sacrificially? Because of God's promise that he will fill the gap. 
It's that it's acting on the faith. If we believe God's promises, we will give sacrificially because we know God will provide the balance. God will provide. Or do we just give enough and hold back? And it's not always about money. It's not about money. How much of yourself do you give and hold back? Do you give of yourself sacrificially? Do you give of your time? Church, there's a lot of work to do. The harvest is plenty and the workers are few. Christ used the example of the workers in the vineyard, in the fields. He expects us to work. James finishes this, just as the body is dead without breath, so also the faith is dead without good works. Divided heart, soul and body. They're all interlinked and they're all together. You cannot separate your faith and your works. It can't be just faith. And it can't be just works. Faithless works are just as worthless as workless faith. Neither is sustainable. Only through obedience to what God has specifically called you to do is your faith sustainable, alive, growing, vibrant, reproducing. That's my prayer today. That's what I hope we walk away with is that we have to do something. As a body of believers, it's time to get out of the chairs. It's time to be an impact. It's time to listen and be obedient to what God has called you to do.